Wow. You guys are getting really good at that. I don't know. We may need to add that to the set next week, AJ. I even saw you singing that back there. I saw you lurking in the shadows. I saw you. Hey, I'm so glad that you're here. And, you know, I'm just, as we're singing, I was just thinking, man, we're, we're really in an exciting time of Dublin Bible Church. I know maybe it may not seem like it because of COVID and all that. But I'm just really kind of overwhelmed right now because I believe that God has positioned us so well for us, and even through this time of COVID, to launch us into a better future. And I start to see these things happen. I just want to say thanks for the kids team who came out this morning, came out early. I know you got some of my wife's really good cooking, so that's probably why you came out. I'm I'm not really sure. Probably because you love Jesus and kids too. But uh, I just want to say thanks for, for coming out early for that. And I so appreciate you. We're starting kids next week. Uh, Arise Student Ministries, the team there is doing a great job and positioning us for a great future. God's showing me things, things through this time that we're going to use in the future. I'm really excited about what God has for us at Dublin Bible Church. Amen? And is God good? Is God good? He is good, right? And so He is good, and He is going to do amazing and good things through our lives. So, In this series, what we've talked about is really just drawing out this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself from Mark chapter 12, verse 31. So that's really what we've been talking about the whole time of just how can we love our neighbor? And and this is such a time of tension of like, how do we do this? And I believe that, again, because of everything that's going on, we're going to be positioned so well and we're being positioned so well to go out and be launched out in Jesus' name to love our neighbor as ourself and to love our neighbor the way that God would want us to love our neighbor. I don't know about you, but uh, but I used to when I was a kid I used to love to play with batteries. Anybody else in here? Come on, guys, you know some of you like you like to play with batteries. Um, how do you test a 9-volt battery? There's really what's it's got some pop in that one. That's the only way to test it, right? It's like the only way to, to test a battery. Now I, have, I know that some of you are like really technical and you're like, no, you can get to a multi-ohm meter, multi-ohm, you know, a multimeter and you can probe it. And I, I get it. I have one, right? But I'm just, you know, I wasn't going to do all that. You know, it's for the common folk who don't understand it. So, um, so anyway, to, just, to see if a battery has power, like these type of batteries, right? You got to stick your tongue to it. If you get a little pop, you're like, whoa, the, the, the more the pop, the more... It works. More power, right? That's just the way it is. And it discharges like positive and negative. You put your tongue on it and you become both. You become the ground and loop in here. It's all right. I've got a good heart. So I think my, I'll be okay. I really will. I've been practicing all week long. So, um, but that's the way this works. Now, here's, here's the reason why I tell you this, not just so I can show you my battery skills because I have some, but I want you to know there are two different types of batteries up here. There's this type of battery that is just it's an Energizer Max, whatever that means. And, and when this battery is done, right, when, when the power has all been released out of this, there's nothing left, and the potential for this battery is just to sit in a landfill forever. Sorry, that's probably where it's going to end up, right? There's no value to this. However, this battery is a rechargeable battery. Now, I am not going to stick my tongue to this one. I'm not. I know it has strong, a stronger charge to it. I know it. The interesting thing is that battery is very limited on the, on the amount of power that it can hold. This one, and because it, when that one's depleted, it is basically gone. But when this one gets depleted, then it gets 
Recharged. Thank you. I lost the word there. I was going to say energized, but it was an energizer. So recharged. You're right. It gets recharged. This is what happens when, in the way that we go out and we love people. The more that we grow in our relationship, our vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father, the more that we receive that into ourselves, the more it flows out of us into our neighbor. I love this quote from C.H. Dodd. He actually said it a lot better than me. He says, the energy of love discharges itself along these three lines. And he says, and the three lines form a triangle. First one is to God. And then he says, the next point is to self and the neighbor. So vertically up to God, into self, out to neighbor, right? So up to what? God. Into, out to my sermon's done. We need to do some more singing. We're out of here. We're getting to lunch early. No, that's it. So this is the, this is the, the big idea about the love of God, that once we receive it vertically from our Heavenly Father into ourselves and out to other people. Now, just because I love this quote, and I think that's true, and I gave you a really cool illustration, and I just zapped myself about four times with the battery just because of all that, I also want to show you in the Bible that this is true. So I invite you to go into 1 John chapter 4. And I'm just, I'm not going to apologize for this, but we're going to be in several different scriptures today. So if you can't get to all of them, write down the source, type it in your phone and find it later. But I want to, uh, to have us really go into the word to see the varying different places that are going to speak into this idea of, of a love that comes vertically from our Heavenly Father into self out to our neighbor, right? So 1 John 4, 16, and we're going to see actually... The vertical relationship with God, the relationship to self, and the outward relationship to our neighbor. We're going to see all of these actually in 1 John chapter 4, but they're not going to be in any particular order. I'm going in order of not what the scripture says necessarily, but what the quote says. So the first one is God. So the vertical relationship with God. This is what it says in chapter 4 verse 16. He says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in him abides in God, and God abides in him. So notice that it's a love that God has for us, but it originates with God, the vertical relationship with God, but it's for us, and then it says right here in the middle of this that God is love. And you can see expressions all over the New and Old Testament of, of the way that God loved. You can. As a matter of fact, if you were just to go through every page, there would be just something there displaying the immensity and magnitude of God's love. And it says, And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God's plan all along wasn't to just show us what love is, But God's plan all along was to have the love of God dwell in us. Because notice what it says at the last part of that verse. And God abides in him. One of the goals all along wasn't just to to look at at, at Jesus and say, wow, and just just see the glory and splendor of Jesus. That's amazing. But also is that, that the Holy Spirit of God would dwell among us. That the vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father would do something internal to us. The more that we abide in God, the more His love abides 
in us. So now let's talk about the self, right? Talk about self in a good way, right? First one, vertical relationship is, is verse 16. And now, same probably page, in verse 12, it says this about self, this, this love of self that comes from God. So verse 12, 1 John chapter 4. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another... God abides in us, and His love is perfected, where? In us. So there's an internal work to the the, the work and the love that God has for us that is not just supposed to dead end within us. The love that God has wasn't just a display on a cross. But it was the indwelling Holy Spirit then that was supposed to do some internal work into us. And now let's see how it flows again up to God into who? Into who? Self, right? And then out to a neighbor. Let's go to the neighbor. Verse 16. Same chapter, verse 16 through 19 says this. We have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, verse 17, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, we also, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love, that's neighbor, why? Because he first loved us. So now we see the culmination of the vertical aspect of love, the love the Heavenly Father has for us into self and now going out to neighbor. Let me give you a clarifying phrase because I think a lot of times we see this word and we see this word perfect and I want to give you another clarifying phrase and kind of taking the the Greek and to help us understand it. It's this, God's love is not made complete or perfect by our own perception or our own experience, but through expression. In other words, If it is indeed God's love, it doesn't just dead end with us. That there is a love that God has that flows through us and goes to our neighbor. That is indeed what the love of God is supposed to do. It's it's not made complete or perfect, as some translations say, by our own perception or our own experience or absorption, but it's through in and through our own expression. There was a, a famous Baptist preacher by the name of Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. Like I've told you in the past, it's like if you have like initials in your name, you are smart. Either that or old. I don't know. It's either one of the two because we don't do that anymore. But there was a really cool thing that happened. He was a very famous uh, Baptist, or excuse me, British preacher and What's really cool is he and his wife had five sons, and of the five sons, they all became preachers. So now it's six preachers, right? I can just imagine, like, you know, Sunday dinner or something, like, nobody could get a word in edgewise. All, like, everybody's a preacher, everybody's wanting to talk. 
But it was a cool thing because I heard this story that somebody showed up at their house one time, and now you have six preachers in the room. And now the guest came in and he says, which one of you or who in the family is the best preacher? They all said unanimously, mother. That's what they said. They said mother. And what was amazing about this is this. They said mother because although she's never preached a formal sermon, her life has been a sermon of God's love. Isn't that amazing? And they're also smart because she's probably feeding them. So anyway, so there's... Probably something going on there too. The thing is this, God, people cannot see God, but they can see the love of God as we go out to show acts of kindness and helpfulness to others. They can't see God, but what they can see is they can see the love of God when we show acts of kindness and helpfulness to others. This is the out to our neighbor. And no matter what even that may look like, because it could look like a bunch of different things. The bottom line for today is this. God's heart for people is on display by the level of love that we have for one another. God's love, God's heart for people is on display by the level of love that we have for one another. I don't know about you, but I think I was in like fifth or sixth grade and we had to do science fair it was mandatory I don't know like you had to do that too was it good did you like it you did I didn't I they did it kicking and screaming they because I had to do work and stuff so I just wasn't into that especially in fifth or sixth grade we had to do science fair and what that meant was I had to study a material write a short paper make some display thing and then people would come by and they would like grade me on how well I did or like how terrible like that's just a just a horrible idea for me in fifth or sixth grade and I, but I remember that I took this idea from my brother, actually. See, I, I was trying to cop out a little bit. But my brother had done it years ago on tropisms. I know, a tropism. You're like, yeah, that's so old hat. It, by the way, a tropism, it means like, in, I was talking about plants, but it's a, it's a growth response to a stimulus. You're welcome. That's what that is, right? So there's a phototropism. You can literally set up a display and you put a plant there, you put a seed, and, and if you put a light over here, the, the plant will automatically grow towards the light, right? Phototropism. Another one, just in case you're curious, because I know you are, you literally could have, you could put water, not even in the same container, but you could literally have water outside of the plant, and a plant's roots will automatically grow towards water. Yeah, it really will. Hydrotropism, there you go, water. Uh, phototropism, geotropism. You literally could put a plant side, but I hope you're not taking notes on this because nobody cares, right? Geotropism, you could put a plant sideways, and what's it going to do? It's going to grow vertically. Geotropism, that's what it is, yeah. Woohoo! Yeah, I didn't do well. But anyway, I learned something. Uh, but I hated doing the whole project because I had to set up this display. And the display, I mean, studying was, was okay, and, and writing a short paper was okay, but I'm like, how do I display this? I remember I was in my room, and I had my, my desk that I used to, um, well, they, I think my parents bought it, so I would do homework there, as if I was going to do homework there, but I like, had this desk, and I had put my little lamp, my reading lamp there, and I put it there, and I had my little plant, my little project, everything growing in my room, and then it was a day of doing all that, and then it dawned on me, I'm like, how do I actually set this display up? Because I knew you had to have like these cardboard things that were like behind you. And I was like, well, how do I do that? Like my display is this plant. I'm like, phototropism. All they have to do is just look at this plant. How are they going to get it right? Anyway, uh, long story longer, I butchered this whole display. It was terrible. 
And I didn't do really well on the science fair thing. And actually, I didn't even like science more by doing it. So I guess the whole plan blew up in their face. Um, but nonetheless, the, the, the point being, it was a display. It was a display. And everybody was displaying something throughout the gymnasium. And everybody's work was different, and they were displaying something. There is something that is supposed to be on display if you're part of the family of God. And what is to be on display is the love of people. That It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your educational background. It doesn't matter the work that you have or the family that you've come from. What is to be on display for all of us and through all of us is the love of God. And the display is to be so consistent that they were to look at your life and they would see the love of God. They would look at my life and see the love of God and they would see your life and see the love of God so that they would see that the love that God has for them. One of the things that kind of gets us jumbled up is this idea of legalism. And I realize some of you were actually reared up in legalism and you had to break free from that. And I understand. I too was caught in that in a small way. But I just want to kind of tell you this and tell you the difference between grace-centered living, what we talked about last week, and then also the way legalism plays out in all of this. You see, legalism says, I have to change to be loved. I have to change to be loved. Like, God's going to love me if. God's going to love me if and when. I do the right thing. I say the right thing. I dress the right way. I sing the right song. I carry the right Bible. I whatever. But gospel-centered living is drastically different. It says, I'm loved, and God is changing me. I'm loved, and God is changing me. That way we don't have to pretend we can be our true selves. And grace-centered living is, is the recognition that we're in need of the grace of God because we have an ongoing uh, struggle for sin. And because of that, God, keeps, he, God loves us irregardless of our conduct if we're in Him. And God changes us by the power of His Spirit. So I, I have five different principles that I'm going to break down to kind of convey this point this morning. And the first principle is this. God's people have a change of heart toward God's family. So there are some changes of heart that should happen. If we have gospel-centered living, that we're loved and God is changing us, our hearts should be changing, and they have a change of heart toward God's family. And again, I have five different examples of this. So some of you just love when I do this stuff. Here you go. You have five different things to write down. Um, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek because you guys give me a hard time. I deserve it, though, and that's okay. John chapter 13 is where we're going to look at first. Um, this is going to be on the screen, and eventually we're going to land back in 1 John 4. So don't move in your Bible. You can just write down this source. This is what it says in John 13, 33 through 35. It says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me just as I told the Jews. So I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, this is what Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, in other words, by this display of love, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So by, by loving one another, we clearly see that there should be a change of heart towards 
God's family in the way that we love one another is going to convey the message that the love that God has for other people. Here's another reference in 1 John 4, 19 through 21. This is what John wrote. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, well, I love God, yet he hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this new command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, brother is sometimes in the New Testament, it is gender specific, and this time it is not gender specific. It's just a way of saying men and women who are connected to the body of Christ. Second takeaway is this, after we talk about God's family, God's people have a change of heart about their home, about their home. Something, if there's a change in your heart, there should be an attitude or perspective that changes about your home. And for this, we're going to look at Acts 16. It's a really short story, but a compelling story. God's people have a change of heart towards their home. Acts 16, verse 13. In case you are curious, this is Paul's secondary mission, second missionary journey. And the, the lady who's being referenced here, many scholars believe that this is actually the first convert to Christianity from the European continent. So this is a really big deal. This is a really cool bit of history here as well. So Acts 16 verse 13 says this, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Theatra, who was a worshiper of God. So she was was not Jewish, but she was practicing things within the Jewish faith. That's another way of saying she was a worshiper of God, meaning that she was a Gentile, but yet she was choosing some things of the Gentile, or of the Jewish lifestyle. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. Notice what she says. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. She's like, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And the text doesn't say this necessarily, but it's almost like there was a going back and forth to say, no, I'm not going to bother you. And then she had to convince him because notice what it says at the very last part of that verse. And she persuaded us. She apparently had wore him out. She's like, you're coming. And she says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. Because something had changed inside of her to where now she was connected to the new family of God. She was once outside of that. And as soon as as she saw people who were connected to the new family of God, she's a believer. And she says, if you consider me a believer, won't you come and stay stay at my house? Because automatically she availed her home and her life to other believers. If we're in Christ, there should be a change of heart towards our home. Our home should be considered a place of ministry. 
not just a place of retreat from people. It's a place of ministry. And it's not just a place of ministry for your family. Read the New Testament. That's, that's too easy. Instead, it's, it's a place where now it is a, a hub of ministry for people who are either strangers, as we're going to see in a minute, or part of the new family of God. The third takeaway is this. God's people have a change of heart towards strangers. Towards strangers. So first we see there should be a change of heart towards God's people, the new family of God. A change of heart uh, talking about your home. And now we're going to see this flows out to even strangers. This is what it says in Hebrews 13 too. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's an amazing prospect, isn't it? That when we've actually entertained strangers, we don't even know. We don't even know who it is that we're entertaining or what God is doing. Our eyes can't see that. I want to give you a very practical way that this looked in in Nehemiah 5, Old Testament, if you go to, the, go to the left in your Bible to Nehemiah 5, I'll give you just a second to get there. And before we get there, I'll kind of give you the context so, so you understand what's happening in this passage. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a king, and he was living away from Jerusalem. There had already been two groups of exiles who'd gone back to Jerusalem. Some of you ladies already know this because of the ladies' Bible study. This is going to be like old news to you. The first group of people who went back was led by the, uh, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Three B's, in case you are curious on the spelling of that name. Zerubbabel. The second exile group was led by Ezra. He was more like a spiritual leader. And Nehemiah had gone back. And he had, before he had excuse me, even gone back, he had heard about the city of Jerusalem, that it was in ruins. And the people were in, in just spiritually just desperate. So he went and he pleaded with the king. And he says, if it pleases the king, can I go back to my homeland? to go repair the wall. Well, he spent some time there, and the king actually helped fund the work. So even um, pagan money helped fund the work, and it's kind of a cool thing how all that works. And uh, apparently there was no separation of church and state in that day. So Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem, and the work is, is starting to be done, but the problem is the work is expensive. And because the work is expensive... The people who are now working on the wall or the people, some were literally like working with one hand and then they had a weapon in the other because of, of the, the enemies who were coming up to try and um, to basically just nullify the work. So Nehemiah, he hears that the people around him, his people, are actually, they're suffering because they, they're no longer able to work, so they're not making money, so now they're having to borrow money And now they're borrowing money and they can't pay for it. And they can't pay back the money. And there was this this usury tax. It's almost like loan sharking. It's it's kind of a modern day tidal pond. It's a simplification of it. But it's like going to a tidal pond, which I don't recommend anyone ever does this, by the way. It's a horrible financial decision going to a tidal pond. But the way a tidal pond thing works is this. If you have a title to a vehicle and you need money, you go in, you hand them the title... And then they give you a certain percentage of money based off of what that is worth. And if you don't pay it, they just hold the title. If you, don't, if you continue to not pay it, they keep the title. And then you still have to pay the money back. 
So it's, it's a bad deal, right? A similar thing is happening there to where they're not able to pay their debts. So Nehemiah hears it, and the problem is the people who are withholding from them are his own people. His own people. So it isn't like people outside of the faith. It's people inside the Jewish faith are then putting this usury tax. So he hears about this, and he's, he's frustrated, and he's burdened. And this is what it says in verse 14. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. In other words, he says, I could have been receiving like these spe- this special treatment and I could have gotten these kickbacks. But he was a governor, a political official not getting a kickback. Insert humor there, right? He says, notice what it says in verse 15. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, verse 16, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All the men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, a hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. In other words, complete strangers. That he, being the governor, he didn't receive the special treatment that he could have received, but instead he had over 150 people that he fed personally, and even complete strangers, so the work of God would continue. We, if we're in Christ, and we have this this vertical connection with God, and it's into us, it should be out to others, and out to our neighbors, and out to strangers, and that should look differently, and it should look like Nehemiah, where he opened up his his life, and he opened up his, his, where he was living, and he fed 150 people of them, complete strangers. Another takeaway is this. So this is God's people have a change of heart towards hurting people, hurting people. Not like we should go out and hurt people in Jesus' name, right? Don't read that wrong. You got to watch punctuation on that. So it's saying there should be a change of heart towards God's people, the new family of God, our home, strangers, and now hurting people. In Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, we're going to see how this story plays out. I'm just going to read it because I've actually preached through this over the last like year and a half. So uh, I don't know what message it was, but I'm sure you guys remember everything about it. So I can just read this and we'll take the principle, right? Because you guys are so smart and attentive. Um, so what? You're not? Okay. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25 common passage in the scriptures, New Testament, says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what must I do? He thought it was about him. Like, what do I have to do? Notice what it says next. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? Well, how do you read it? He answered, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He apparently didn't listen to my message last week, right? As to who the neighbor is, because I told him, told you. But verse 30 says this, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, now you're going to see three different individuals walk by. A priest happened to be going down on down the same road when he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, here's the second. When he came to the place, he saw him. He passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took, him, he took out two silver coins and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have had. Which of these do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Notice what the expert of the law said. The one who had mercy on him. Notice that he didn't say the Samaritan. Because the Samaritan, although in this story from Jesus, the Samaritan is the hero of the story. The Samaritans were the enemies of the people who are the experts in the law. They were the, the, they were the enemies of of the Jews. So he didn't even want to go through and say Samaritan. He just said, again, look at verse 37, the one who had mercy on him. What did Jesus say? Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So these these three individuals, and we don't know exactly why these three people were picked. Maybe the priest, maybe he, he, was, he told the story, and maybe the priest walked by on the other side of the road is because he was going to go do his temple duties. And if he would have stopped to care for the man, and if the man happened to be dead, then, he would, then that would make him ceremonial unclean, and he wouldn't be able to uh, go and do his temple services, and that would basically kick him off the list, and he would have to get to the end of the line to come back. We don't really know. The Levite, we're not really sure. Maybe it was just he was so caught up in the duty of doing religious things that in the duty of doing all the religious things, he just didn't want to take the time to, to love his neighbor in the way that he should. But the hero in the story is the Samaritan. And notice how Jesus tells his story, and the Samaritan just goes like overboard. But that's what a love for neighbor does, right? It's just, it's just this lavishing, overboard kind of love. Notice what... What the Samaritan does, it, it bandages, there's pity there, there's compassion, bandaging wounds, putting on his own donkey, sending him to the inn. He's caring for him in the inn. He's paid for him in advance. He also, he paid for him to stay there, but also he says, hey, if there's anything else, any extra things that, that kind of adds up to his total, he says, I'm going to cover that too. You see, this is what it looks like. If somebody's heart has been changed by the love of God, one of the expressions is that we would go out and we would love hurting people. Like this man in the story. This is what it looks like. 
taking pity, having compassion, giving, giving of time, stopping our day to love the person in front of us. I want to break down a misconception for you. Love is not measured by perfection. Love is measured by its demands. This, this expert in the law, he, 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 he knew some Old Testament things, and he was an expert in the law. It was, it was like a, consider it like a, a religious lawyer. So he would be able to argue things, and he really knew the Old Testament, the Old Testament law specifically. He just he wanted to be perfect, but he wanted to do it by his own merit in his own measure. That's not the way that God works. That's not the gospel. So love is not measured by perfection as what this man wanted. It's measured by its demands. Notice that the demand for the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan were all the same. Love the person in front of you. But notice the other two skirted around and they avoided the man, most likely to do some sort of religious duty. But the demand was to, to help this man who was right in front of them. It's the same with us. A, a question, kind of a, a clarifying question to help us in every regard of, of loving our neighbor and, and loving the family of God and just loving is the way that God would want us to love is just ask this question. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? That's the demand. That's what's right in front of our face. What does love require of me? This positions us in a place where we're ready to engage with God. That we're ready to love the way that He loves. That we're ready to proceed in life. And we're ready to do the thing that He wants for us. If it's, if it's giving financially, if it's giving of our possessions, if it's giving of our time. If it's simply stopping long enough to have a heart-to-heart connection, like this, this Samaritan sat down and had pity and compassion. Love is measured by its demands. And what does love require of me? The last takeaway is this. After God's love should change a heart and that should be expressed towards hurting people, God's people have a change of heart towards their enemies, their enemies. This is what it says in Luke 6, 32 through 36. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those who, whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Verse 35 says this, but love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. God's heart 
is on display by the level of love that we have for one another. God's heart for people is on display by the level of love that we have for one another. So how are you doing with this? I mean, we've been in this series a long time. And I know probably in the first message, I said some things, and you were uncomfortable, and you're like, okay, I'm, uh, there's probably a new message coming next week. You're right, but it it's connects to the one from before. And, and we've intentionally camped out here because this needs to be deep in us. This needs to be deep in us. That the love of God vertically up to God into self is only made complete when it goes out to our neighbor. I've just shown you five different elements of this that should be evident in your life if Christ has changed you. And again, it's not measured by perfection. That would be legalism. Instead, it's measured by its demands. So I leave you with this. The question, I told you this question a little bit ago, the question of all questions that you need to be asking of yourself in every situation is, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? These are the types of things that turned the world upside down in Jesus' name. These are some of the characteristics that so shaped the early church that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people wanted to be a part of that community. The same could be true of us today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, and we are so grateful for this opportunity to be here and, and to sit under your word. And God, I'm thankful that that you've loved us first. And that we do have that display of love. The greater love has no one than this, the one would lay down his life for his friends. That for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. That whosoever would believe in him would have eternal life. And God, I pray that as this message continues to ruminate in our souls, God, that you will drive that question home. What does love require? of me. Let us be the people who display in a beautiful way the vertical love from you, the love we received to ourself, and the outgoing love to our neighbor. And God, when we do that, I pray you would give us boldness, strength, bravery, courage, and confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.
Y'all have a great rest of your day. No, I was serious. Have a good rest of your day.
we know that this battery eventually is going to what? It's going to run out of juice. It's going to run out. If I keep touching my tongue and I, st- I keep making myself the, basically the connecting it with positive and negative, eventually the thing is going to be worn out. Anyone attest that theory for the rest of my sermon? Probably not. But anyway, COVID, I get it, I get it. So you don't want to any, any other time you would. But this battery is just a regular old battery. The, the reason why I convey this message is this battery has limited potential in and of itself. However, this battery is a little bit different. A, it feels a little bit different, and I'm not going to test this one out on my tongue. I know it's got some juice, so I know it's going to pop. This battery is not like that battery. That battery, once it runs out of juice, it's going to like be in a landfill somewhere. Sorry, I'm, uh, it just is. That's where it's going to be. This one is a rechargeable battery. This one's different. It looks like it, but this is recharged. So when this gets depleted, we literally can plug it up to a power source, and boom, it's ready to go in very short order. So it is with the love of God. If we operate of our potential, if we operate of the love of God in and of ourselves, we have limited potential. Limited potential. However, if we operate, that's without the love of God, with the love of God, we operate with unlimited potential. There's a quote from C.H. Dodd. He says it better than me. He says this. He says, the energy of love discharges itself along the lines of a triangle. And he says, the first part of the triangle, think up to God, triangle, up to God, right? Now I'm teaching you geometry. Into self, out to neighbor. So say it with me. Up to God. Say it ready. Up to God, into self, out to neighbor. You guys got it. This is what he's talking about. He says, there's potential, and and there's potential because the love of God, that's unlimited potential because it's not limited to ourself. It's not limited to our understanding. It's not limited to who I agree with and disagree with. Instead, if we have been so persuaded by the love of God to give our lives to Jesus Christ, we have unlimited potential. So if we ever get depleted, we go back to God, and God replenishes us, recharges us, this is what the gospel does. It refuels us again and again and again. That's what we talked about last week, if you remember. Now, because I just don't want you to take C.H. Dodd's work for it or my word for it, and because I'm sick of zapping myself with this battery, I want us to see in the Bible, we're actually going to go, and I invite you to go to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 16, and the Basically, the big idea here in the next couple of minutes is we're going to draw this out. We're going to say, uh, see rather, in the scripture, it's up to God, and that's what we're going to see first. This is the God portion. The next one is into what? Self, and then out to neighbor. Yes, thank you. So this is what we're going to see from God's word. All of this is right in 1 John chapter 4. What's beautiful about this is in 1 John he mentions these things over and over and over and over and over again. And specifically throughout 1 John 4, he talks about loving God and loving others and loving God and loving others over and over and over again. So, but the first verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, that I want to look at of talking about the up relationship with God, the love that originates with God. This is what it says. John wrote this so brilliantly. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for, what's the next word? Us. And the love, and the one, excuse me, and who abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. So, 
What's amazing about this is the point of Jesus, the point of really the scriptures, the point of a lot of things, it's not just so that we would have an empty cross and say, well, that's just the display of what love is. That's huge. I mean, granted, that's a big deal. That is an, it, I mean, we will, we will never get over, if we're in Christ, we should never get over the work of the cross of what Jesus did for us. But the point of this passage is, sure, the love was displayed by the, on the cross, but there's a love that first originates with God. Notice that it says, God is, what's the next word? Love. God is love. Old, New Testament, throughout the Bible, you see these displays of God's love in all sorts of different ways to all sorts of different people. And notice what it says next, and the one who abides in love, in other words, it's the love that God has on offer, abides in God, and God abides in him. So, one of the the key principles of the gospel is not that we would just have an empty cross and a display of Jesus showing us is that the Holy Spirit of God would indwell us. That it wouldn't just, that the love of God would not dead end with us. You see, if we don't understand this, then the love of God just dead ends with us. And it stops with us. The second verse, uh, verse 12, same chapter. We're going to see not only the love originates with God, we're going to see that throughout this talk, also into self. Notice what it says in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides where? In us. And his love is perfected where? In us. So God's love is perfected in us and God abides in us. In other words, it isn't just the love of God. It's also a, God that, a love of God that has for us. Is that God wanted to indwell us so that we could be more like Him. Again, we can't get over the cross. The cross is enormous. We wouldn't have salvation without the cross. However, the love that God has for us is not to dead end with us. Look in verse 16, same chapter. Same chapter, verse 16 says this. 1 John 4, 16. Eventually, I'll find it. There it is. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we're like him. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Notice what it says in the very next verse. We love because he first loved us. So the love that originates with God, the vertical love, right? Love from God into whom? Self flowing out to neighbor. This is what John is talking about. It's like this love that originated with God and then the Holy Spirit indwells us and then it flows outside of us. I'll give you a summary statement, uh, kind of conveying these, these verses all together. It's this, God's love is not made complete or perfect by our own perception or our own experience, but through our expression. In other words, it isn't just about us. It isn't that, oh, I just got all the feels because I feel loved by God. It isn't that, oh, I have this experience and I gave my life to Jesus and I, I just realized that 
Greater love has known than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And now I'm a friend of God because of Jesus Christ. And, and because greater love has no one than this other than what Jesus did. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for me, a sinner. That's my own experience. But love is made mature or complete by the expression, again, up to God, into whom? Fill in the blank. Into self, out to neighbor. Wow. This is, this is huge. This is huge. The, the reason why this becomes so enormous is because it means that the work is not complete. There was a famous Baptist preacher back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. His name was Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. Like, I've told you this in the past. If you're like known by initials, you're a smart dude, either that or old. But we're going to say smart, right? Because no one does this anymore. But what's really interesting, uh, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, his, he and his wife had five sons, and all of them became preachers. Like, they all became preachers. So now it's six preachers in the family. I can't imagine what Sunday dinner was like. Like, how was church today? And then each one of like preaching, like one up, and I don't even know. Sibling rivalry, I, rivalry, I have no idea. But what I do know is this. There was a, a conversation that was had in their home, and and all six of the preachers were sitting there, and, and somebody who was just, a, I, I think, just a family friend was invited into the home, and they said, kind of like probing them a little bit, and they said, which one in the family is the greatest preacher? Now, could you imagine the posturing, right? Well, it could have happened. Their response was amazing. They all said in unison, mother. Mother. Well, why would they say mother? She had never preached a formal sermon, but her life was lived out as a display of the love of God. She didn't need a pulpit to say it because she had a kitchen and she had a bedside and she had chores. In the middle of chores, she was showing the love of God. When she would love a neighbor, it was an expression of the love of God. When she would help someone else, it was an expression of the love of God. You see, people can't see God, but they can see the love of God when we show acts of kindness and helpfulness to others. And I believe she got that right. She got that right so much so. And, and maybe, maybe the only reason why they said mother is because, you know, she fed, she fed them. I'm not really sure. But, but they said mother, and I believe it's because they looked at her and said, whoa, she's kind, she's helpful, she's all these things. She's displaying the love of God. And she didn't need a pulpit. She just used her kitchen or a table or a shoulder or maybe some service. One thing I know for sure God's heart for people is on display by the level of love that we have for one another. I know that for sure. God's heart for people is on display by the level of love that we have for one another. Like how well, not just here, we're going to see essentially there's five different principles from script, several different scriptures we're going to get to in a second. But all of these things become the way of which they become a display of the love of the level of love that we have for one another. So uh, to convey this, I'll tell you a story. I don't know about you, but when I was in like fifth or sixth grade, I had to do science fair. Did anybody else have to do science fair? I didn't even know if it was a thing. There you go. So, so did you like it, Tammy? You did. Awesome. Good for I didn't like it. I didn't. You know why? Because it had to do with work and stuff. So I wasn't a fan of that. Back in fifth or sixth grade, the the, the, the less mature Chad back then was not nice and not really nice to teachers. And I was kind of anti-establishment in some ways. 
sadly. I'm not bragging. It's just fact. So I had to do the science fair project, and I did it kicking and screaming in a science fair project. As they would drag all of us in the, all these grades, and they would put everybody in the whole school district inside the gymnasium, and each of us had to have like this little display case. We had to pick a topic. Tammy knows this. You're like, I had to pick a topic, and after you picked the topic, then you had to s- display it. You had to write a short paper on it. I had to know this stuff inside and out. I had to do all these other things. I had to have some sort of experiment, a la science, right? So I had to have all these things going on. And they force you to do it. So I picked a topic. Honestly, the only reason I picked this topic, it was the laziest of choices. I picked it because that's what my brother did in high school. So I was just like, I don't know, tropisms. Some of you are like, I've been waiting my whole life to talk about tropisms. And some of you are like, what in the world is a tropism? I get it. Here's what a tropism is. A tropism, in case it would keep you up at night, I just want you to know. It is a, it's a, like in this regard, it's a plant. So it's a growth response towards a stimulus. A growth response towards a stimulus. So I'll give you an example. Phototropism, because we're talking about plants. I, I was anyway. If you set a plant over here and you put a light over here, the plant will automatically grow towards the light. Some of you already know this. You've seen sunflower fields, right? It's beautiful. Wherever the sun goes, what happens to the sunflowers? They track all day long. It's amazing. Uh, geotropism, here's another one. Again, just in case you want to geek out on this later, you can fact check me. All you want. So uh, geotropism is if, literally if you put a plant sideways, you plant it sideways, it will automatically grow up and the roots will automatically grow down. It's a geotropism. It's just the way God made it. It's a growth response towards a stimulus. Now, that would be gravity. Uh, there could be hydrotropism. So if you have like water over here, the roots will automatically grow towards the water. They're not going to grow away from it. It's automatically toward it hydro water tropism a plant's growth response towards water i know i know and i remembered all the way from back then so uh, although i do remember this for my science fair i just want you to know i didn't like it so it didn't make me like like science more so there you go science teachers stick it to you um but I had to make this display, and everybody else had to make this display. But here's the interesting thing. Everybody's display was different. Mine was terrible. Mine was like black and white. There was nothing colorful about it. I did it so begrudgingly. I'd gone to Walmart and got the cardboard thing, and I stood there, and like I have no idea how well I did on it, but I know my heart wasn't in it. My display wasn't very good. And I could look around and see other people's displays, and I would say, whoa. I mean, obviously, you are like the teacher's pet in art because that is impressive. Like, it was colorful. They'd have, like, bar graphs and, like, codes and all kinds of stuff. It was cool. I couldn't track with it, but I, but I could appreciate it. You see, it was all different. When you go in the gym, if you were to go around and look at all these displays, they were all different. If we're part of the family of God, the display of love that we have for one another should be very similar. When, when somebody would, who's outside the church would come in here and they would look at your life as a follower of Jesus and my life as a follower of Jesus and your life as a follower of Jesus, people should look at our life and they should clearly recognize that it is indeed the love of Jesus. And what should be on display shows ultimately the level of love that we have for one another. Last week I talked about uh, what it means to be grace-centered in our life, to, a grace-centered life. So I want to connect in something because I know some of you um, have, have a history of legalism, just as I do. I had a short, a short time in my walk with God that I, I, I was kind of in that track and I got out of it. Some of you are more entrenched in it. But I want to just kind of convey this as far as legalism on this topic. Legalism says I have to change to be loved. 
Legalism says, I've got to change to be loved. I either have to change the way I dress, I have to change the way that I speak, I have to change the way that I pray, I have to change my friends, I have to change my lifestyle, I have to change my home, I have to do this to be loved. That's what legalism is. That's the reason why it is, it is opposite of the gospel. That's why. Because legalism is rooted on you. It's a matter of performance. If I perform or say or do this certain deed, then I'm going to be loved. That's just not the way of Jesus. That's not the gospel at all. Instead, gospel-centered living is, is the opposite of that. It says, I'm loved and God is changing me. I'm loved and God is changing me. So your love isn't on condition to how well you perform the duties of being a good or good Christian person. The love that you have for you is a love that was expressed, and it's a love that you received when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. At that point, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that you're loved and God is changing you from the inside out. I'm going to give you five different things that should be evident in our lives. First one is this, God's people have a change of heart towards God's family. If we are living a grace-centered, gospel-centered life, we're taking into account the fact that do we have an ongoing struggle with sin and we have an ongoing need for grace, the grace of God in our life, and through this, God's people will have a change of heart towards God's family. So starting with God's family. If you don't believe me, Let's see what Jesus said in John 13, verse 33. He said this, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now. Where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. Notice what he says next. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, in other words, by the love that was received to them and also the love that received from God into self out to neighbor, out to other, other people in the family of God, he says, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So th- this is part of the Christian experience. And when we have a change of heart, because we receive the love of God, it should be expressed in ways where we love God's people and that others can tell. 1 John 4, same passage where we were earlier, verse 19 through 21 says this, We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, well, I love God, yet he hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What John's talking about specifically here is this word brother. Now, this is not being gender specific in this way. Sometimes in the New Testament, when the word brother would be used, it could mean anyone is connected to the family, anyone who's in the family of God, or it could be gender specific. In this way, he's not just saying it in a gender-specific way. He says, no, if you're part of the family of God, there should be a love of God that is evident in your life, and it should be evident in your life and flowing out to other people who are connected to the family of God. Second principle is this. God's people have a change of heart about their home, about their home. You should start to see your home as a place of ministry. 
It's not a place to retreat to to get away from people. It should be a place of ministry. And not just minister to your family, because I realize that too. Well, that's where I minister to my family. That's great. But it shouldn't end there. Again, the love of God should not dead end to, uh, in with us. It should from God into self out to neighbor. Let's look for a, a biblical example of this. Go to the left in your Bible and to Acts 16. Acts 16, verse 13 through 15 is a really short story about a, a lady by the name of Lydia. She herself was not a follower of Jesus originally, as none of us were originally, but she was a Gentile person. She was separated from the Jewish faith, but she was practicing, uh, she was a practicing Jew, although she was a Gentile. And we're going to see specifically what happens after she gives her life to Jesus and her life is turned upside down. What's cool about this is this story is, is in the middle of or near about the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. We know that he did three main, main journeys. It was in the middle of the second one and also she could be the very first person who was the first Christian convert who was from the continent of Europe. So that's a really neat thing. And it was a lady. And think about the impact that she would have. Now, you're already there, so I, I've been talking the whole time. I need to go back to Acts myself. Let's see what it says. Acts 16, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city, city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there, to the women who had gathered there, excuse me. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Theatra, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited, listen what she did, she invited us to her home. She said this, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my home. Now, we don't know what happened next, but I believe that there was a, something that happened in between what I just read and where I stopped and where she, and where this verse, the next verse says. I believe that there was some resistance. They're like, no, that's fine, that's fine. And I believe she wore them out. Because what it says at the end, what's it say right at the, at the next verse? And she persuaded us. In other words, she wore us out. Like we weren't going to go. And she's like, no, why don't you come? And it's like, no, we're not going to come. And then eventually they end up doing it. But notice how she does it. She says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. She had given her life to Jesus, and in an instant, she started to view her life and her home and her possessions differently. It wasn't about her. Instead, she availed herself and her home to other people. Another uh, thing that we will see is this. Not only do God's people have a change of heart as to two uh, other people connected to the family of God, and not only do they have a change of heart as it pertains to their home, God's people have a change of heart towards strangers. Strangers. Hebrews 13.2 says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You don't even know who it is that you're entertaining sometimes. And you don't know what God can do when you open up yourself and your home to someone else. 
There's things that we know in the natural world, and I believe there are so many things in the supernatural world that we don't know, and that's what this verse points to. Although that may seem like, whoa, that's, that's like a really big thing, and maybe it would take faith to receive that, and I understand. I invite you to go to the left in your Bible to Nehemiah 5, and I want to tell you something that you're going to be able to see in concrete form. Well, I believe fully that that scripture is true from Hebrews 13 too. But we just don't even know that we should not neglect hospitality towards strangers. Because there's, there's supernatural things that we could be a part of and not even realize. What we also see is there's going to be a, just some normal things that happen as well. So while you're flipping open to Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14, I want to give you the context really quickly. Context of this passage. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to a pagan king. He's a Jewish man, but he hears about the condition of the people around Jerusalem and that the walls are torn down and the city's in disrepair and they're spiritually, they're just, you know, they're oblivious and walking away from God. And he's so burdened. He goes to this pagan king and he asks him a favor, a, a certain favor like this that literally could have gotten him killed because he was a cupbearer and that was his duty. But he goes to the king and he convinces the king. And he tells the king, he says, if you let me go back home when the work's done, I'll come back to you. So we know that he did, and that, that, that the pagan king, he says, yes, he sent him. And not only did he send him, he also used some of that pagan money to help fund it, which is kind of a cool thing. So Nehemiah goes, and he, they start building. And he utilizes the people that are there. We know there are people who are there, and there are other people who just, they just get bought into the work of building the wall. The work of God at the time. But because it was costing them so much and because these people weren't able to work, then they started to struggle financially. So then they started to, to start borrowing money just to eat, for their families to eat. And after they couldn't, they couldn't pay those debts, they started like then kind of offering up their homes and, and maybe some property. It's collateral. It's, it's, a, a modern-day example of this would be like a title pawn, which I don't recommend anyone do these. This, what I'm about to tell you, is a terrible financial decision. But a title pawn, it works like this, because most of you maybe haven't done this. A title pawn, and we have one or a couple in town. You literally you go in there. If you need money and you have the title to a vehicle or a boat or an ATV or something, you have a title, you basically give them the title, and then they give you a percentage of money based off the value of that title. Once they give you that money, the idea is they're going to loan you that money, but you have to give the money back with interest. And if you don't, they still have the title. And if you continue not to pay, they keep the title, and then they sue you, take your title, take the thing that they're, they're holding in limbo, and also you still have to pay the money back with court costs. And what's happening here is Nehemiah had heard that these people were borrowing money, but the reason why they had to borrow money, they were suffering because... They were actually doing the work that he asked them to do. And to make matters worse, it was their own people who was doing that. And what is so twisted is they literally had to go out and they had, there were children put in debt slavery trying to pay these bills. That's how nasty this was. So Nehemiah, he couldn't stand what was happening. He hears of this. Let's see how he responds. Nehemiah 5, 14 through 18. 
He says, moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, a 12-year span, by the way, it says right here in the passage, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. In other words, he was the governor, and he would have been allowed some special treatment, maybe some kickbacks, and he didn't. Imagine a politician not taking special favors or kickbacks. I know it's hard to believe. It's here. It happens. Verse 15 says this, but the earlier governors, in other words, the people came before him. He says, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people, and they took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over, these, over the people. But notice what he says next. It's so compelling. He says, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Whoa. Wouldn't it be amazing if politicians would simply look at what other politicians are doing and seeing maybe some other politicians that have some twisted measures and say, I'm not going to act like that. Here's what he did practically in verse 16. He says, instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. They did not acquire any land. Furthermore, a hunt... Just read this. It's amazing. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. In other words, total strangers. Then he says, Each day one ox, one choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wines of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. He says, I am not going to act like those other people. Although I was entitled to it, I'm not going to act that way. Because he was changed by the love of God. And the way that the level of God, as it was changing him, it also allowed him to view life differently. Notice what it says. 150 people ate at his table. And he didn't get special treatment like the other people. So he's feeding 150 people off his table. Some of them were strangers from other countries who'd come in. Because of the work. That's what the love of God does. It not only changes the way that we look at our, our home, it not only changes the way that we look at God's people, it also changes the way that we look at total strangers. Another thing we see is, is that God's people have a change of heart towards hurting people, towards hurting people. The fourth takeaway. Then when people are so compelled by the vertical, the love of God vertically, inward to self, and then continuing outward to neighbor, that this should express its way towards hurting people. Luke chapter 10 is a great example of this. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. I'm not going to read this in super great detail and really expand this passage because I preached this recently and because I know all of you remember that other sermon I preached like a year and a half ago. I don't even need to go through all these things because you are so sharp, right? Of course you are. Um, That's what I would say about you. But in verse 25, so we're just going to take this and this really talks about how to love our, our neighbor in such a practical way and it's specifically towards hurting people. So Here's what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what, what, he was, what was he leaning towards? 
more of a legalistic perspective. He says, what do I need to do? Let's see how the conversation unfolds. Well, what is written in the law? Jesus replies. And he says this, how do you read it? Which I, I love this. Jesus knows that this expert in the law, he's kind of like a, he has like a lawyer's brain, but with a knowledge of the Bible. So he's literally trying to reason and argue like, like a lawyer. So Jesus, he just, he just says, well, how do you read it? He answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I am sure he said this, and he was like, grand slam, bottom of the ninth, we're down by three, walk off grand slam home run, I win, I win, you win, we all win, I got it right, first first greatest commandment, second greatest commandment, everything's awesome, I'm awesome, look at me, I nailed it. Oh, but let's see how Jesus replies. Just, just to see how Jesus replied to this, he says, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Hmm. Do this and you will live. But, verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, here's the thing. All he had to do was listen to last week's sermon. I said who the neighbor was at the beginning of that talk. Like, literally, go on YouTube. It's there, right? He says, and who's my neighbor? In his reply, Jesus said, a man was going down. I love how Jesus would do stuff like this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, there's three individuals in this story. The first one's here. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, here's the second individual, a Levite. When he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to the inn, and he took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus said? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Now, why would Jesus say the one? Or, excuse me, why would this expert in the law say the one? Well, because the hero in the story was a sworn enemy to the Jews. So, the one, this expert in the law, Jewish, he looked at the Samaritans as being this great enemy. And he's like, so he doesn't even dignify and say it was the Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy on him. And notice what Jesus said. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. We're not for sure. A lot of, a lot of people have studied this and they think, well, why would the priest, he would, he would see the man, why wouldn't the priest stop? Who knows? Maybe he was caught up in his religious duties and he's like, I gotta go to the next, next religious thing. Maybe that the priest was afraid because of the priest, for them to, to have the duties in the temple, there was literally like a roster. And if you were ceremonial unclean, and then you got bumped out of the roster, and you would lose your place, and then you would rotate back. So he wouldn't be able to go do his, his 
his temple work. Maybe. We don't even know. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was just the fact, again, he was just so caught up in religious things, he had to go do the next religious thing. Also, a Levite. We're not really given any explanation as to what that is because the Levite, we know that they're, they too are this kind of elite spiritual group, and maybe they were caught up in all of the religious things. They were just too busy doing the, the, the religious, quote-unquote, thing rather than do the right thing. But the hero of the story is the Samaritan. What does the Samaritan do? Shows pity, right? Walks over to the person who's on the side of the road. Doesn't walk around to ignore, walks to the person and goes down and, and is willing to get their hands dirty. Bandage wounds. Took pity is what the scripture says. Some of your translations say compassion. I think, I think compassion is probably a, a word that conveys it, it better in English. It shows compassion or pity. Not only that, it's like, no, I'm, I'm going to put him on my donkey. He probably can't get up there himself. He's half dead. I'm going to put him on the donkey. I'm going to take him to the inn. I'm going to care for him in the inn. And then I'm going to leave him in the inn, and I'm going to pay for his stay in the inn. And if there's more that's needed after his stay, I'm willing to go the extra mile, and I'm willing to pay that too. Because love is not measured by perfection. Love is measured by its demands. Love is measured by its demands. The expert in the law wanted to know, how can I justify myself? How can I be perfect? But love in that situation and in every other situation is measured by its demands. A question, a clarifying question for this whole talk, it would help you in every regard to apply all these principles, is this question that you could ask of any situation. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? Because if you're asking that, the, the demand of love in front of you changes. It, it always changes. It depends on who's in front of you or the situation that's in front of you. So you could ask this question, what does love require of me? And love is measured by the demand, the demand that's right in front of us. Another takeaway is this. God's people have a change of heart towards enemies. First thing we saw was what? God's people have a change of heart with God's people. Second thing, God's people have a change of heart as it pertains to what? Their home. Another one was with, the third one was with strangers. The last one we just talked about was with a change of heart when it comes to hurting people. And the last one, the fifth one is this. God's people have a change of heart towards their enemies. Towards their enemies. And I, I've, I've made the hardest one the last one. So, why do I know what's the hardest one? Well, look at the way that Jesus conveys this teaching. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Verse 35 says this, but love your enemies and do good to them. 
and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful as I, as the Father is merciful. God's people should have a change of heart for all people. For all people. And on that list is our enemies. And the way that we love people, well, the way that we love our enemies is going to show the world that we are vastly different than them. Because God's heart for people is on display by the level of love that we have for one another. God's heart for people is on display by the level of love that we have for one another. This is what it's about. This is why we have to get this right. Because we're always displaying something. And if we, if we just go at this ourselves, we're going to have a limited potential. It's going to be limited. And we're going to find ourselves only liking people or doing good to people who are good to us. Or lending to people who only could give us what we want back. But if we are so moved by the vertical relationship with God and that it's into self and it's outward to others, the, the beginning of that is the love for God. It is replenishing, recharging, continual potential. So the question, the question that speaks into God's people having a change of heart as to it, it, as it pertains to, to God's people or as it pertains to strangers, as it pertains to hurting people, as it pertains to our enemies, as it pertains to our home, is this. What does love require of me? If you ask yourself in that, in that situation, you position yourself to show the love of God in a compelling way. If you abide with God in the love of God and it's into self and you ask that question, what does love require of me? Then you are positioning yourself to love your neighbor well. And I believe loving your neighbor well was the thing that got the early church all the momentum that it had. I believe it was just the compelling expressions, outward expressions of love that saw thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people give their life to Jesus. And in the, in the first couple centuries after the movement of Christianity, then you started seeing people laying down their life and becoming martyrs for the faith. It's because they were so moved by the love of God. And that they had received it in and of themselves. And many of the reasons why that they suffered up into death is because they were expressing that love to neighbor. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus wants us to be right and ready to love whomever and however he determines in advance. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this word that you've given us. God, I thank you that because 
just as your word says in 1 John 4, that, that God, you are love. God, you are, you are our supply. And we're in such demand. So God, we ask that you would just continue to move in our hearts as we wrestle with and, and ruminate with that question. What does love require of me? God, I pray you would spur us to action. That you would turn our hearts upside down and our homes upside down, our relationships upside down. And I pray, God, that you would start with me. I pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.